Hey, it's Nick, back once again. So, uh, what's new then? Well, for us, we finally launched our Twitter account. And honestly, I mean, the reception has been nothing short of absolutely muted. Yeah, I mean, we have a grand total of, let me see here, uh, 37 followers. And I'm not even going to tell you how many of them are, like, porn girls wanting me to insert my credit card details. And while, yeah, I agree, fairly tempting, but I've refrained, you know, so far. But if you want to swell our numbers, you can get us at uh, Nick Hatton, at Erev History. That's Erev History, I-R-R-E-V. As some scummers already nabbed the Erev History handle, I'm in the cheek of it, look. But by all means, join us, and together we can cause some havoc in the uh, Twitter sphere, if that's what it's called. Also, you may be interested to hear that we have a, a special coming up. Huh? What about that? But we're aware that, you know, when people declare a special, it's generally just giving clout to something that's kind of shit. Yet, they bang on about it, about how awesome it is and how excited they are. And invariably, it's just a total anticlimax. Well, this may fall into that category, but I think it's going to be awesome. and I'm dead excited about it. It's uh, at least three mystery guests slash my mates all doing some shtick, uh, each, uh, a story they like from Ulster's past, and it's to celebrate us reaching the grand total of episode X, or 10, if you don't sprack and see Latin. Anyway, I've talked enough tripe here, so this is episode 008 of the Irreverent History of Ulster, Beyond Brief. To learn of the past, the answers can't be asked, it's researching such a mystery. So I'll grab this podcast and I'll learn at last of Ulster's irreverent history. Okay, yes, this might seem a little bit indulgent, as it's the third out of the last five that are about James Agnew and the Wraith. But to be fair, it's only a quick one, and who doesn't have time for a quick one, you know? But I'll add here that if you haven't listened to episodes four and five of the podcast, then I would totally recommend that you do, as it's, it's, it's all the back history and the backstory to this episode and then you can sort of understand all the crack about the wreath and why we're looking behind it and all that jazz right so I was going to call this a bonus episode but I thought that might be just a little bit presumptuous you know in the vein of a special so I've slotted it into the normal listings but I'm sure no one out there really cares do they you know my deliberations over this dilemma it's not really going to cause any stroke so instead let's just go with Fred Durst and start rolling now there's a guy in my workplace with a bittersweet face and he goes by the name of Ebenezer Turner well Sorry, it's Ian Turner, but he's from the industrial north of England. And he sounds like he was lifted straight out of Johnny Briggs. But he's my family tree guy. Like, I'm not sure whether it's a passion or he's just nosy or what, but either way, he's very good at what he does. You know, he's constantly looking for further evidence as to possible connections, whereas I find someone interesting and latch onto them. You know, pretty much right away, absolute cert, he's deaf ours, genetic match, 100%, just know it. Even like drawing up an itinerary to go visit their grave and all that kind of jive when he pulls up a document that shows that it's all complete bollocks. So I was doing the family tree with him. I started talking about my great uncle James and Ian being, being a bit of a war buff. He told me about his great uncle, a guy called Private Ernest Holmes of the 20th Royal Field Ambulance. He was saying about how he was originally of the opinion that he was all medical top and, you know, saving lives. <laughs> Recently he found out that he basically just drove the food vans about. You know, like one of those guys you see at halftime parked outside the football grounds, you know, when you get charged like a tenner for non-cow meat and a dairy lease lice. But a few days later, he presented me with this page. It was it was the memorial for James. You know, his sort of grave records with his service number, memorial site, age of death and all on it. He even told me where he thought he may have died. On the morning of the 16th of August, 1917. And actually at the Battle of Langmark. I looked at that date. I just decided there and then I was going to go to Flanders for the centenary. You know, 100 years. Definitely. So I spoke to my dad and he responded with the classic Ulster phrase of get her booked. 
So as an aside here, Ian also found details of my workmate Davies Granda of the King's Royal Rifles who received a horrific injury. He had been shot in the foot, believe it or not. I know what you're thinking. Oh, foot injury? Yeah, sure. But apparently some German crackshot blasted him in the toes from about a yard away before fleeing without kind of inflicting any further damage. Like, Davy's granddad was found unconscious, pistol still clasped in his hand. Obviously in a brave attempt to repel the attacker, but unfortunately the injury sustained meant that he was moved to the Labour Corps, which sounds easy, doesn't it? You know, laying roads, passing out bullets, just kind of chilling in the back where everyone else does a fighting. But he actually had to go into no man's land and cut wire and dig trenches under unbelievably heavy enemy fire. He got buried alive three times. So, I mean, if there was anything suspicious about the foot injury, then the ploy had totally backfired. And if you're wondering about the dastardly Hun, who had somehow sneaked, you know, behind the British lines to shoot Davy's granddad's foot and escape unsighted, well, he was never apprehended. And in no way related to this story, SIWs, or self-inflicted wounds, saw almost 4,000 British soldiers being sent to prison for that offence, with many more kind of suspected but unproven. And do you know what? From what we know of the conditions of the war, can you blame them? You know, take my toes, just get me off the feckin' front line, please. Anyway, I kept researching with Ian. You know, there was kind of fervour, was like flowing out of me, and I was trading stories constantly with my cousin Beverly as well, but main focus here was James. I tried to read all about the Battle of Langmark. You know, about James, about the Royal Irish Rifles. And we found another James Agnew, this time from West Belfast, Irish J as we coined him. And he led us down some rabbit holes before we realised that he was a different person. And those two are the subject of podcast 004. And then 005 is then the story of me and my dad and April with our visit to the Blandersfield Museum, the Kraken Trappist Monk Bear and all that. And it was there that we had our introduction to the crosses and the wreath, which can be seen on the Irreverent History Facebook page, if you want to look at the pictures, along with all the photos relating to this new episode and previous ones and such. Now, the wreath was leaning against the wall. Now, the wreath sat there all impressively. And it had Agnew written on it. So, I, I mean, I was all over it. And then I moved it to see if there was anything written on the back, and that's where we saw the crosses for James Agnew 42470. That's my great uncle. I mean, gobsmack doesn't cover it. And it's here that I'm going to let a fan of the podcast take over for a minute or two. This is an excerpt from an audio message that he sent me. I couldn't play it all, but I'm only going to play this bit. And you'll see he has quite the imagination. And in his own words, he explains his take on events that day. Um, so I imagine you turn over the wreath, you and your dad have your um, moment, and then you just, if it was a movie... Imagine this as a movie, you just start running with strangers, you're running after them, spin them around. Did you just lay a wreath for James Agnew? They they visibly are disgusted, repelled by you, you know, spin you around. Some of them spit at your feet. One even slaps you hard, and then it just starts pissing down the rain, and you've given up all hope and forlorn, and you're just screaming into the skies, Agnew or Laurie to me! Agnew or Laurie! To me! Your dad's given up. He's going back for another pint. And you just start hammering the clay with your fists in the pissing rain. And you've given up all hope. And you open your eyes just looking at your fists in the clay. And one shiny patent red shoe comes into your vision. And you look up. And there's this uh, unbelievable looking woman saying, It was me. It's some, I don't know what accent that was. And then obviously you two start banging. Um, it's, it's a far removed distant cousin, don't worry. Uh, that's the end. It's, it's sort of like a Tom Hanksy sort of role and then add a wee bit of filth in at the end. But um, that's what I think if it was a movie. 
quite the flair for drama there, eh? You know, I'm sure you'll agree. He does go maybe a little Mills and Bin at the end, doesn't he? But I can't really disagree with anything he said, you know? It really is actually as if he was there, you know? But on that, I'm all for you guys getting involved here. If you're interested in any way, and you can get all the social media handles from the website at irreverenthistory.com and just send me what you've got. I mean, I can't guarantee that I'll use it because i got to check it and see if it's suitable, but see if it fits the vibe, then why the hell wouldn't you use it? You know what I mean? Send me your guff and we'll see what happens. See if we can get you famous, you know? But getting back to the story, we'll get home from Flanders. You know, buzzing. Really excited to record the next podcast and throw out a few feelers to try and find these igneous that had left the wreath and the crosses. You know, branches of my relatives that had, had maybe splintered somewhere up the tree. But to be honest, we didn't really get that much feedback. I mean, a little bit, not, but nothing really to get your teeth into, you know, really to chew on, you know. And that this isn't helped by the fact that you can yank a potato farl in anywhere in East Belfast and you'll hit at least three agnews. And they really are that common. A few weeks went by and I hadn't seen my dad since we got back, you know, I was catching up with work and kids and all that sort of stuff. So we invited him up for dinner with my mum. Me and Henry, who's my dad, we're sitting at the table having a few red wines and talking about the lack of progress and just generally, you know, life and stuff. When my mum chimed in with a, uh, I know a Larry and she's related to your granny. All right, okay. So push that to the side for one second. Um, well, yes, I just said Larry there, right? And there's a backstory to that. I was in Spain on holiday taking a break uh, from looking after the kids you know where the wife was just chilling on the lilo as usual you know miles away with her shades on probably sleeping who knows but I was having a quick beer and just surfing for info and James when I came across this website called everyonerememberedorg and there was a record for James it was the same name same death date same service number I mean I wasn't falling for the old James Agnew 5037 trap again you know and it was written by a lady called Liz Laurie I was like, okay, it was interesting. Who's this? It spoke of how her grandfather was Jamesy's uncle. I went to war with him at 30 when Jamesy was 16 or 17. I mean, I nearly fell off my sunbed. This was early August, a week or two before I was going to Belgium to see Jamesy's memorial and before we found out about the wreath and the crosses and all that. And we would soon see that one of those crosses mentioned Jamesy's uncle, also called James, but James Laurie, who was the uncle of my great-uncle or my great-grandmother's brother. Yeah, Capace, you got that? So... When my mum told me of knowing a lorry that was my granny's relative, I near fell off my bloody stool. Because, you know, me ma, or Mo for short, she's the best memory of anyone I know. I mean, she remembers literally everything, which, as you can imagine, is really shit if you have an argument with her. But it's incredible for research. And it's even more incredible when you find out that that she met this lorry lady 40 years previously, when they both worked in Horn and Wolf, which is the shipyard of the Titanic fame. And to make matters more confusing, Esther, who's the lady in question, wasn't actually a lorry, but a Louie. So I was a bit dubious, but my mum was giving it the whole trust me chat and took the mission up of finding her. So I was like, no problem, right? Now she'd barely seen this woman since leaving work due to having to give birth to my brother, you know, the bed shaker. And back then, you women had to leave their jobs when having kids. You know, there's no year-long maternity leave supplemented by, like, an additional 12-month sick line from the doctor back in those days. I can tell you that, you know what I mean? Amazingly, though, right? My mum had met Esther the previous week in Marxism. I mean, where else do the retirees hang out? So I was thinking, two meetings in 40 years does not bode well. So I was like kind of urging my mum to go and set up camp in Marxism, but in absolutely out of the blue, bad shit, crazy luck. She met her in Wardens and Arts, and that's another haunt of the pensioner, I mean, the following week, and found out that her cousin Eleanor was a full bird lorry. It was Esther's mother and Eleanor's father being brother and sister. So my mum got her phone number and fearing that I might 
Mike Superman's kind of might scare the pensionable generation, you know, because I'm so eager to solve this mystery. My mum uh, agreed to phone Eleanor herself. So after a bit of ships in the night kind of stuff, my mum eventually got through to someone in Eleanor's house. It was her husband, a guy called Stephen. And he chatted away to my mum and mentioned that he used to work in Shorts, which is the aeroplane factory. It's now owned by Bombardier and it's a massive employer in Belfast. I mean, this isn't strange in itself, but me and my brother have both worked there. And my dad was heavily involved in the engineering sector here, so he would know a lot of the guys. So when Stephen asked my mum's surname, it was actually Stephen's turn to fall off his seat as he worked in an office beside my dad for years. I used to speak to my brother all the time about their mutual love for like MX5s and even helped me to actually initially get employed in shorts by doing a kind of like mock interview over the phone. So that's that kind of crazy coincidence and a bit of, this is crazy, what a small world chat. Eleanor said she would contact the lorries and see if she could find out if they were the layers of the cross. You following so far? Cool, right. So that weekend, I was doing a crossfit competition in Swords in Dublin, right. It was a mixed sex competition, two guys, two girls, and we'd hired uh, an Airbnb house for the weekend. I mean, there was me, the eldest, obviously highly respected by the three young whippersnappers in the team, you know. Obviously, I'm the leader. Uh, there was Mahogany Will, Professor Pat's Pending, and Amy the Yam, who, I have to admit, is a powerlifter of some repute. The previous week she was in South Africa representing Northern Ireland in the Commonwealth Championships and she finished second through a weight category, which is pretty good. Like, she actually won five medals in total and she's quite proud of that. And as if we hadn't seen uh, enough of her posing with them on Facebook and Instagram. And I think she might have actually hired a billboard somewhere, I'm not sure, but she brought them with her so we could all have a look. It was pretty cool. We all got to wear one and prance about. It was pretty cool. Like, so after that kind of medal display, and as a sign of how seriously we take our CrossFit, you know, we head out to the pub for a few scoops, right? And I'm one of these people that keep my phone in silent because see when it beeps all the time, it really, really grates at me. So when he eventually got around to checking it, there were five missed calls and a couple of texts. And it seems that Will had left his car in the wrong driveway, so it needed moved. And I phoned back one of the numbers at random and was greeted by a non-Irish accent. And I was a bit confused, so I headed out into the corridor uh, so I could hear properly. And... It was Liz. It was Liz Laurie, you know, the lady who'd left the comments about James on the military website. I mean, as I was standing, I didn't really have anything to fall off, so we just toppled on the wall in disbelief. I mean, we spoke for about 20 minutes, like, swapping stories and all that, but in truth, it's a little bit hazy because, you know, Guinness and stuff, but we arranged to speak again on the Monday evening. Now, I got back uh, on the Sunday night, and then on the Monday morning, I checked my emails and had one from a guy called Phil Laurie, uh, who's only from bloody America, saying he'd love the podcast. So, obviously, I was a little bit full of my own kind of self-congratulations, pretty much air high five myself kind of vibe, and I didn't really read the email, probably. He had said that he was related to Liz and Eller, who had sent him the link, but I, you know, I ignored that, and all I heard was, your podcast has reached the shores of the new world. I mean, pretty much thinking I was, like, kind of kinking it. Uh, I, I spoke to Liz later on that night, who mentioned Phil, and I was kind of really glad it wasn't a video call, because she would have seen my kind of podcasting world domination bubble just dramatically deflate. However, I managed to pump myself back up just in time uh, to be knocked over again as she declared that she was not the one who had left the wreath. I okay, so the crosses, they were her. And get this, she had had the wit to write her contact details in the back of the crosses, but unfortunately I just hadn't had the wit to check. I mean, I mean they were kind of they were kind of dug into the ground. I didn't want to just yank them out and, you know, start mucking about with them. So we kind of left them there and didn't check. But I mean it's a lesson learned. But the salient point though is that she hadn't left the wreath. So as one mystery was solved, another was upon us. So I went back and re- reread Phil's email, right? And after a face palm or two and feeling a bit wick, you know, because, you know, 
sort of assumed it was just podcasting all over the world and it was brilliant but we had a bit of back and forth you know we got a few emails together and all and he sent me his family tree which which helped put a lot of kind of the family relations in context because once you start getting into third cousins twice removed it all starts getting really complicated i mean i think liz might be my third cousin three times removed i'm not overly sure and phil then he's even further out i'm not sure but there's some kind of genetic link there so we'll just go yes we're related say no more you know but anyway he also, in his emails, he sent me some links to movies that his dad Harry had taken, you know, back in the day. They were of, they were of Harnell and Wolf, you know, the big shipyard, like I said, with the Titanic fame, and it had the Sea Quest and the Cambrian. As both my parents worked there, you know, we watched them together. It was really cool, like, seeing, you know, all the memories flooding back, their eyes, like, kind of lighting up when they saw, like, sort of old buildings used to be in and stuff. Because the videos are from, like, the early 60s, and it was like, they were quite young back then, you know, kind of hip and cool. I mean, if you want to see the videos, I'll link to them in the show notes at irreverenthistory.com slash 008. Or you can find them on YouTube if you just want to be sly and bypass the website, you know, and not support the podcast. Only I'm not going to mean do what you like, but see if you have family from Belfast or, or that worked in Harlem Wolf years ago, then, then the videos are really cool to watch in their company. You get to see sort of sort of insights into them you've maybe never seen before. And see if you recognise any of the people in the videos, please let us know, because Phil would really like to hear that. Then to go back to Liz, right, when I was speaking to her, we discussed uh, the wreath, you know, the wreath, and the note that came with it. Now, we were never really convinced that it said Agnew Grave. It definitely said Agnew, but Grave just didn't seem to fit. I mean, like, it was crowbarred in, and that's a shit pun, by the way, and you'll see why. It looked like it said Agnew Crow. Like, it was a branch of the Agnews that had married in some crows or something. So, I said Google to work, and the very first link that popped up was for Agnew Crow on findagrave.com. See, when I clicked it, I near shot the bed. Right before my eyes was a photo of the wreath. Another photo was of the man himself, you know, Agnew Crow, standing like proud and resplendent. He was dressed head to toe in his, you know, a crisp military uniform. On another photo, there's a pic of a little girl with a cute smile. She's like crouching by the wreath, you know, slightly beneath the memorial. And see if you look above where she is the names are kind of etched into the wall you can see both of the two James Agnew you know they're mere millimetres apart like they're in the third column but see in the middle column about a foot or two down is the name Lance Corporal Crow A or Agnew Crow I mean the mystery was over I had checked checked quite quite extensively for other Agnews but just didn't expect that it would be a first name I mean I'll be honest it was a bit of a blow you know, at first it was a sadness, you know, finding out that that was it, you know, the end. You know, we now knew what was beyond bereaf. And it wasn't family, it wasn't an extra line that we didn't know. But then another feeling took over, if briefly, one, one kind of a relief. Relief that would reach the conclusion, you know. And I looked again at one of the photos and there was a caption that said, Summer Gardener, well, that's the little girl with the kind of cute smile, unicorn dress and the Adidas sneakers, you know. It says, Summer Gardener, five years old on her second visit to Agnew's memorial. The latest generation will not forget. And that really got me, really hit me with like a weird feeling of emotion, you know? I mean, how cool, how cool that she's there and that she knows about Agnew. He died, like, I mean, almost like a hundred years before she was born, almost. And with that then, my next feeling quick, quickly became intrigue. You know, intrigue at just who was Lance Corporal Agnew Crow, the man whose memory means so much to the people in the photos. Now luckily I didn't have to check behind anything here, because under the caption was the name for the guy who had uploaded the photos. It was a guy called Neil Gardner. 
and he had left an email address. So I mailed him with my shit story, basically just saying, how's it going mate, wait till hear this for a weird wonder. And he couldn't have been more obliging to help, he pretty much got back to me straight away. He told me about Agnew, and how they too, like my family and I assume many others, have a kind of legend in the family of, of the younger soldier, you know, convinced Whenever the, these guys joined up, you know, it weren't the UGC in the official documents. Joined up maybe around 15 years old. He signed up with a friend, maybe cajoled into it. And they completed their training together. He went back to see his family before shipping out. And he broke down. You know, he was distraught at having to go to war. He probably realised how terrible it was out there. Just how tragic and drastic a life it was going to be. He signed up in the aftermath of the Somme, you know. All those people had died and there was a lot of kind of pride flowing about. But that had maybe probably withered away with all the training. And his friend, his friend would never serve with him. As his family bought his service back. I knew though, and he was not so lucky. He joined up with the 14th Royal Irish Rifles in Flanders on the 11th of August. With 19 other men. Only 5 of whom would survive the war. With almost half of them being killed at the Battle of Langmark alone. He was made Lance Corporal when he arrived at the Belgian front. And he would fall within the week. His body still out there in Flanders fields to this day. In all the correspondence with Neil, his devotion to Agnew's memory, it's so vivid, it's clear. He refuses to let him be forgotten. He mentioned about how he has cousins as well, that also share his passion, and that their relationships between them have blossomed due to it, and they happily share the kind of responsibility of remembrance, you know, between them all, and they leave memorials each year in his local church, on his family headstone, and in Tancot, and that in itself is something positive that's come from the war. I mean, it's a shared grief that kind of bonds and binds distant relatives, similar to how we've got to know Liz and Phil. And there's a further part to the story of Agnew Crow. We know that he died trying to save someone else's life. He died a hero. And it may be taking a leap here, but indulge me for a second. What if it was James? What if Agnew died trying to save my great uncle? Yeah, I mean, I can hear the murmurs of doubt, but ignore that. They were both in the 14th Royal Irish Rifles. They were both 19, both Presbyterian, both had Agnew as their handle. Maybe they had chatted and shared a joke about that. Maybe they were known to each other. Maybe Agnew had tried to save Jamesy. Tried in vain, both of them fallen under heavy and sustained enemy fire, like so many of their fellow Ulstermen did that day. We will never know. What we do know is that a man called to the Crow residence after the war and spoke of how he had been told that Agnew had died that day, trying to save his son's life. We don't know who that man was, and he was never seen again. Could it have been my great-great-grandfather? making a pilgrimage under a cloud of despair, but feeling feeling a necessity, an obligation to pass on the story to Agnew's family, that they may know of his heroic acts. Maybe. Again, we just will never know, but it's a humbling thought. Even if it wasn't Jamesy that he tried to save, it was somebody. And that's the key to it all, isn't it? The story of brotherhood in the trenches. Despite the fear they all must have felt, they had that camaraderie, that bond. I mean, that's how they got through it all. Just how many of those tales of heroism were unknown to us today. I mean, whether it was Agnew or not, I would like to think that someone would have tried to save Jamesy, or that Jamesy died trying to save them. Whatever happened, the tragedy remains that both of them fell before they had even been able to see out their teenage years. 
As you know, I'm not related to Agnew Crow. I didn't even know of him. I mean, not at all, until a few weeks ago. But he has jumped right in here as a major part of this story, just like Arashe. And to me, they both represent the unknown. You know, the fog of uh, unfamiliarity, I suppose. Now, when I was in the Meningate, I was mesmerised by the sheer number of names. You know, row upon row of thousands upon thousands of letters carved into those walls. But that's pretty much all they were, you know, just names and letters. As were Crewway and Agnew James 5037, I mean, just months ago, but not now. Now I've, I've, I've glimpsed into their history, you know, their stories, their lives. I've seen pictures, spoken to their families. Now, their history is almost tangible to me. Of three names on the walls of the Tancot alone, the three that I have delved into, each story has been nothing short of, of a revelation to me. And that's just three. Three of how many millions that died in the Great War alone? Well, I'll tell you, it's 16. 16 million-ish. And I, I deliberated for a while about how to quantify that number. And I was close to bloody giving up because it's difficult, you know. The numbers are just so unbelievably vast. But here's two ways it helped me. The first was use a local example and say that the death is around eight times the population of Ulster. But I wasn't really happy with that, so try it again. And this next one blew my mind just a little. Like the war was about four years and three months, or 1,564 days long. That's about 10,230 deaths a day. I mean, what a day? I mean, that's seven a minute, every minute. Seven people dying every 60 seconds for almost four and a half years. I mean, if you're on a bus or a train or in an office or anywhere you see people, imagine seven of them disappearing every minute. Just think how soon it would be until all of them had disappeared forever. It kind of makes you almost despair being human, doesn't it? Every single one of those people that died had a story. Maybe it wasn't anything spectacular. Maybe they didn't write war poetry or didn't jump on fallen grenades to save comrades. But their story meant something to someone, somewhere. Hopefully it still does. This kind of investigation or story has been nothing short of fascinating for me. I mean, it's been both personal and exciting. I mean, if that's the right word to use. It's led me to discover people and, and tales that I would never have found before. It's taken a heap of research and amongst that research you find works by like war poets and they're like, and two of these I want to mention now. One is a song by the Oldham Tinkers, now I'm not sure where they're from, but the song is called Dad's Medals. I linked it in the show notes and it's, it's oddly transfixing and poignant too. If you have the time, I mean, take a few minutes and have a listen. It's just like an interesting take on... A family hearing about the war from their dad, nothing spectacular. But some of the lyrics are really close to the heart. And here's a few lines as read by Ian, the family tree guy. Them flaming jerry snipers. Jackie Ball got killed same day. In a place as we cowed wipers. He were nob at 17, he'd say. There's also a poem by the tragic and tortured Ivor Gurney called Memory, Let All Slip. So forgive my pretension here. But it's really about how he longs for a future free of all the dark times, leaving just the beauty, what little of it there was. But he doesn't manage it. Memory, let all slip, save what is sweet of April plains. Keep only autumn sunlight in the fleet, clouds after rains. Blue sky and mellow distance softly blue, these only hold, lest I my pined grave shall share with you, else dead, else cold. Now you may think that this is the end of the three-part James Agnew saga. 
And like most people's opinion on Star Wars, we should stop there. Stop at three. Well, you may be right, but there is a new hope. <laughs> and that is that Liz divulged to me that there's a bag or a suitcase somewhere at some house in Bangor where Sister Joe lives with some of James Lardy stuff in it. And she didn't give me exact details, probably for fear that I'd be around pestering the owners, you know. But if you're listening, Liz, come on, get the bag and see what's in it. I mean, it's probably just the whites, like, well, their subject carries around or something, but until it's open, we just don't know. It could be war stuff, even stuff about his beloved nephew. I do know, however, that my cousin Bev is coming over in the next few days for a different family bereavement. I mean, it's strange, isn't it, how it's generally death or marriage that brings families together. But there is a nice reason she's coming over as well. And she's bringing with her James these medals. Yes, medals. And I know what you may be thinking. Oh, what is it? Victoria Cross? Medals for gallantry? Well, no, it's not. It's Mutt and Jeff which is the slightly derogatory term for the British War Medal and the Victory Medal. It's named after characters from a really old American comic strip. They're merely campaign medals, I mean, you just get them for turning up, and about five million were given out, so they're not worth very much, but you still find them on eBay, as you will with many war medals, and that that saddens me. Now, I don't know everyone's circumstances, so I can't judge and I won't judge, but it does dismay me a little that the tokens which cost... So many people, their lives are just being traded away. I don't want to sound all self-righteous, but I will. I won't be selling Jamesies, no matter what happens. They, they will be kept in the house and shown to the kids. And hopefully there are kids and on down the chain. And sadly, we don't have a picture of Jamesie. There's no portrait like that of Agnew or RSJ, but we, we cherish his memory all the same. Just like Neil does with Agnew and millions of others do for their relatives. So there you have it. The end of the story. Well, maybe for now. And to play us out, we have something a little more lighthearted, satirical in a sense, a chirpy little number that, that would make you think that war's all just great crack. And it's one I'm sure many will know. The chorus, why, il catchy, seems so ironic to me, but it was written over a century ago. Was it meant in that way? Maybe, but probably not. Anyway, before we go, we'll just say thanks for listening, and the next podcast should be about Ed the Bruce, another King of Ireland. But anyway, enjoy the tune. Yeah.